good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be. Wherever you are on this rotating globe on this evening in the land of enchantment in the United States of uh, just before midnight, it's about an hour before the witching, actually two hours before the witching hour, you are on the other side of midnight, and my guests this morning are very diverse, very interesting, and have such long pedigrees and credentials that I'm going to be very abbreviated and only give you the salient, most important parts of their backgrounds. You can go to the other side of midnight.com and click on tonight's uh, uh, banner for the uh, guest page. Go right under that to Fast Links to Bios, and you can find out a lot more about them if you are so inclined. Um, this is the Saturday before the official. 20th, 20th anniversary of 9-11, if one can call such an event an anniversary. I mean, I frankly think the English language falls down sometimes in its modalities because th this is not an anniversary. This is, uh, this is a remembrance. This is a commemoration. This is a uh, take stock of where we are, what have we learned. And that's one of the things we're going to be delving deeply into tonight. What, in fact, in 20 years, in an entire generation, what have we learned about 9-11 and what should we be taking forward? And as you're going to hear during the uh, next three hours, a lot of contemporary history kind of prescinds from the traumatic events that occurred on 9-11, which means the reasons behind what occurred on 9-11 are not only important in and, in and of itself in terms of the, the, uh, the tragedy, but for the concomitant implications in a much wider set of ripples spreading out like dropping a huge cannonball in a flat, calm sea. And those ripples, as we're going to be discussing this morning, have had very serious and... Uh, uh, very, very, uh, in some cases, uh, traumatic effect. So without further ado, as you know, at the top of the uh, program, <clears throat> I usually try to do a couple of news items. So let's do this. Um, let me tell you about some of the other things that are happening on the planet before we get to our main topic. If you go to, if you're new to the show, you go to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner, which says, with uh, somewhat of an understatement, 9-11, um, 20 years after, what have we learned? And uh, I, I chose that shot because it really symbolically limbs out the implications for the future of what happened in Lower Manhattan uh, slightly under tonight, one week to go, 20 years ago. Anyway, if you go to the banner, click on that, that will take you to the uh, guest page for tonight, September 5th, 2021. Uh, and under there, you'll see fast links to items in Radio with Pictures. Click on my name. Item number one, there's another major hurricane. We're, we're not even done yet in incredible measure with Ida and all the implications of Ida and the after effects. But there's another storm now. The good news is we don't think the Weather Bureau, the various models, both uh, our models and the European computer models and all that, they do not have this uh, major hurricane making landfall, uh, either, I believe, in Bermuda or in um, uh, uh, somewhere along the east coast of the United States. However, because of the strength expected from the storm, it could even become a Cat 5 in the next uh, day or two. Even though it's hundreds of miles offshore, the um, forecasters are warning of life-threatening surf and rip current conditions all along the East Coast. This shows you the power, the energy released by increasing ferocity of cyclonic systems in an atmosphere which, as we all know, if we've been following the science, is warming. And I think I said a couple of days ago, or maybe yesterday, um, that for every one degree centigrade <clears throat> of warming of the terrestrial atmosphere, the calculations are that the atmosphere can hold about 
10% more water, which during these storms, the winds notwithstanding, has to be released as condensation. Eventually, as rain has to return as part of the inevitable hydrological cycle. Well, 7% more rain. I mean, look what happened in the uh, Northeast just a few days ago, and Ida was days after landfall. It was only, only a tropical storm. So everything we think we know, gosh, where have I heard that before? Everything we think we know, particularly about climactic and environmental changes, which are now accelerating and uh, are in some places moving <clears throat> metaphorically at warp nine, has to be reevaluated. So if you're anywhere along the East Coast and you like the surf and you like the ocean, please pay attention. Even though this storm is far, far out to sea, it could kill you. It could catch you in an undertow, in a riptide, and you're a goner. So be careful. Like I said the other night about driving in deep water and going out and electrocuting yourself, you know, with power lines after the hurricane, be careful. Most of the deaths uh, that are occasioned by these increasingly uh, ferocious storms are in the aftermath, when people think it's all clear, when they can relax. No, no, you cannot relax in particular for you folks that like oceans on the East Coast, uh, don't, don't, don't ignore this one because that which you cannot see, which is far over the horizon, in fact, if you're, if you're uh, not observant, if you're too complacent, if you think you're a really good swimmer and you venture too far out in the wrong place in the next few days along the East Coast, you could drown. I don't want to be, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, shall we say melodramatic, but that's that's the long and the short of it. Okay, item number two is part of item number one. A recent study, which was, and I'll tell you in a minute who did this, which was carried out by uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, indicates that the northeast of the United States, what just happened uh, in New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania notwithstanding, when you factor in all kinds of various variables, it turns out that the safest place in terms of the inevitable coming uh, progressive climate change, which is now too late to stop, even if we were to curtail the release of uh, CO2 into the atmosphere, you know, tonight, tomorrow, uh, there's, there's a long-term after effect that will take decades to work its way through the system. The safest place from climate change, this report says, is the Northeast. Now, that may seem to fly in the face of uh, what we just experienced in terms of the aftermath of Ida, but these studies are in terms of long-term trends, not in terms of momentary blips. And, of course, the assumption underneath this uh, recommendation is that there will be appropriate um, investments in new infrastructure, the idea of building back better, which is not a bad idea, given that the current standards are based on climate and weather models from the 1970s, and they are dead as the dodo bird, as you can well see. It turns out, and I saw this a little while ago, that in the last three months, from June to now, one-third of the American people, one-third of our population, over a hundred million people in a nation of in excess of 300 million have been directly affected by climate change because some kind of environmental or weather disaster has occurred in their own county. Not country, county. And that should really bring it home. Particularly the still extraordinary power loss Something like 600,000 people tonight are still without power in Louisiana. <clears throat> and this is with every resource, uh, of both local, state, and the federal government, FEMA, etc., being brought to bear. And something like 25,000 linemen and electrical engineers borrowed, brought in from other states, 
who have flocked to Louisiana to try to restore power to all those folks. In fact, I heard the other day, tragically, that two of those uh, linemen had died in ap- well after the storm and trying to restore power. So, again, even experts make mistakes. Please, as they used to say on Hill Street Blues, you know, please be careful out there. Uh, item number three. If you want to see dramatically what the flip side of too much water and too much surf and too much wind can do, take a look at number three. This, these are some images called from a variety of news sources of the Caldor Fire in Northern California, uh, just uh, around Lake Tahoe, which has crossed the Sierra Nevadas, which is now burning in Nevada as well as in California. Just look at those images. And if you're not in the in the uh, direct attack of, of a fire, count yourself <clears throat> very, very lucky. If you are, again, take proper precautions. And if you're in a place which could catch fire, uh, I'm here in northern New Mexico surrounded by evergreens, but they're very, very sparse. So we have looked at, I've looked at, you know, escape routes from where we are in this isolated terrain in, in northern New Mexico. Um, again, you need to have what we used to call situational awareness because change is occurring all around us. And if you think you're immune, you are not. Item number four. This is a kind of a segue to our conversation tonight. When the um, events around the World Trade Towers and the Pentagon, when when the attacks occurred 20 years ago next Saturday, um there were there were lots of implications that could only be very dimly foreseen, if at all. One of them, ironically, was made by one of the central players in this psychodrama, uh, Osama bin Laden himself. So item number four is a kind of an overview of how America made bin Laden's dream come true. And you want to read that carefully and look at the links because... When you are the 800-pound gorilla on the playing field, mixing our metaphors madly, um, whatever you do has implications for the rest of the planet. And the United States choosing to put its enormous resources and its enormous military power behind invasions of the Middle East and the Far East, both Iraq and Afghanistan, have had effects unpredictable effects that even now are unfolding, including, um, as we're obviously going to get into, the inevitability of us leaving Afghanistan uh, like the way we came, quietly, not so quietly actually, in the night, and um, with repercussions to follow our absence. So without further ado, I want to introduce our panelists. We're going to be talking about what happened uh, 20 years ago and what we have learned. Uh, my guest this morning, uh, starting with uh, our, our most interesting guest, who's someone who's never been on the show before, former Congressman Cynthia McKinney. She is a, um, a Georgia legislator who then evolved into the United States Congress. And that's a really interesting story. After serving in the Georgia State Legislature in 1992, McKinney won a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. She became the first African-American woman from Georgia to hold a seat in the U.S. Congress. She was the first member of Congress to demand an investigation of the events of 9-11 in 2001, and she was criticized, and as a result, she was defeated in 2002, but came back and was re-elected in 2004. And if you want to see all the rest of the story and all the other remarkably intriguing things that uh, Ms. McKinney has done, you want to refer to her bio uh, on the guest page tonight. And you can find that under the banner at the top of the guest page. Just click on Fast Links to Bios. Um, Matt Campbell is here because he is a brother um, uh, of one of the victims of 9-11 who was on the uh, 106th floor of the World Trade Tower number one. And he's currently living in Britain, 
and he's been campaigning for justice for his brother by putting authority uh, pressure on authorities in both the U.S. and the U.K. And on August 26, 2021, the Campbell family uh, submitted a 2,500-page application under the U.K. Coroner's Act of 1988 to the Attorney General requesting a new inquest into Matt's brother Jeffrey's death. And that's one of the uh, key developments we're going to be talking about uh, throughout the morning. Item number three, we are also uh, honored to have Barbara Honiger with us. Barbara, of course, is an old, old veteran, and I don't mean that chronologically. She's been probably on this show almost more than any other guest. And there's a reason for that, because when Barbara opens her mouth like uh, E.F. Hutton, a lot of people listen. She has served as special assistant to the president. Uh, This was President Reagan, uh, a White House policy analyst, uh, director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice, and from 1995 to 2011 was senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, the premier science, technology, and natural security affairs graduate research university of the Department of Defense. And she's got all kinds of other credits, but she's been heavily involved uh, with the 9-11 movement, in particular uh, serving on the uh, Lawyers Committee. And so without further ado, I will welcome my distinguished guests to the other side of midnight. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello. That was Barbara, followed by Matt. And Cynthia. Here I am. Pulling up the rear. (laughs) Congressman uh, McKinney, may I call you Cynthia? You certainly may. I expect you to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wanted to make sure everybody knew how honored we are to have you with us tonight because you have a very interesting panoply of experiences and a wide spectrum of of, uh, ideas relating not just to the 9-11 situation, but to a whole bunch of other things that are kind of going on. And I'm hoping that uh, after our experience tonight, you will uh, we'll come back at some point and we will discuss several other things that are kind of on my to-do list. I would be happy to. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you what, let me, because Barbara is so organized, why don't we turn it over to Barbara? Well, come on, you are, you are. Yes. <laughs> to kind of give us a rundown of the role each of our panelists are playing uh, in our conversation this morning. Well, hmm, I didn't know I was going to host the show, Richard. <laughs> you didn't listen to Georgia doing her turn last night? <laughs> no, I didn't, no. Okay. I wanted to, but I was, uh, or I'm uh, co-producing the biggest, you know, as I do almost every year, the um, the main 9-11 Truth Movement event in the world. And that will be the um, the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 live stream, global live stream event. Um, if everybody goes to my my items, Bar- Barbara's items, they're probably called, and you click on that. I know Cynthia told me she's got them up. And she did such a great job. Um, you're going to see at the very top um, about the, the details about our Lawyers Committee for 9-11 um, uh, live stream, and that will be on the anniversary, 20th anniversary, September 11th, from um, it's from 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, East Coast Time, and uh, there's a link there for everybody to click on that. Um, a little bit later in the show, uh, when we, because um, I want you to go to your other guests, because I'm going to be on the full three hours and they're not, but I just wanted everybody to go to my items. And at least for now, for anybody who gets off the call before the first hour and a half is over, um, I want you all to see all of the events that you can see online um, uh, for the anniversary from the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 inquiry for from Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, the 9-11 Film Festival, that is an annual film festival for the last 16 or 17 years out of Oakland, California. Uh, and um, also in my items, I've got the uh, article from the Architects and Engineers website about Matt Campbell and his historic uh, action that he's going to tell you about in the UK that just happened on August 26th, a few days ago. And Cynthia McKinney, 
um, is my soul sister. I have to object. I, I think you said, Richard, that she was the most interesting guest on the show. Or maybe you just said she's an interesting guest on the show. But I happen to agree with you. She is, but I'm jealous. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're soul sisters, and I'm just so glad she agreed to be on this program because I think I think she's going to want to be on a lot more. So um, I, I'd like to turn it over to the other guests because they're going to have to leave be- before I do. Okay, well, let me turn to Matt. Matt, um, you, it's been like about a year, I think, since you were on the show last. And because we in the United States have incredibly short, you know, 30-second memories, I'd like you to begin by talking about your brother, why he was on the 106th floor of the World Trade Center number 1, uh, what happened to him, if it's uh, not too difficult to talk about that, because I know... I, I lost someone so close to me a year, two years and a half ago, and it's like it was yesterday. So if, if you don't want to go there, I, I, I totally understand. But I think for context, people have to understand that this is not just a legal story. It's not a terrorist story. It's not a political story. It's a human story. And so let's start with, with uh, Jeff. With Matt. Well, yes. I wanted him to talk about Jeff. Oh, to talk about Jeff, Jeff. <laughs> Um, actually, I, I occasionally, I've got another brother, uh, Rob, and I do occasionally, you know, you just, you, your brain goes, and I call him Jeff sometimes. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so my, my brother, um, he was 31, and it's kind of weird, actually, what you said at the, the start, Richard, about um, anniversaries. It, it is a strange uh, label to attach, a way of, of remembering um, an event that's not a positive one. Yep. You know, we're not talking... Yep. wedding anniversaries or anything like that you know it's um and certainly prior to you know the september 11th uh it that date had no significance to me and obviously for a lot of people me obviously very personally uh with the loss of my brother um so anniversaries you know are, are odd things um you know to, to remember uh, a very you know um i guess for my death a very uh, my brother's death a very horrific um manner in which he died um so he was on the 106th floor of the North Tower. It was a um, a British um, event run by Risk Waters. Um, so it was a very sort of specialist um, breakfast conference, um, you know, looking at various technologies and stuff like that. And, um, and for me, what's always been hard over the years is um, the fact that he was only there because at the time I had a... Uh, a software and cons- a company and a consultancy company in the UK. And we had a lot of clients it's to do with the uh, banking industries. And um, we had a lot of clients in the States and it just made sense for us to start exploring um, having a presence out in, in New York. And um, for the majority of 2001, um, myself and my two co-directors um, had been discussing with Jeff um, about the idea of him actually heading up our office in New York. Um, he was working for Reuters at the time, but um, there was a lot of overlap with what he did and, and new markets that he could um, his, bring his expertise to. And so he was actually at that conference. So was he a financial or a was he a financial or a legal guy? <clears throat> no, he was a. Um, so he worked for Reuters, but he was he worked in the uh, the financial side, but he was in IT. Ah, okay. His area, like me, myself, I, I was in uh, IT. Um, he was a sort of risk management um, specialist, and Reuters at the time had some very specialist software to help manage those aspects um, of what you know their clients needed to manage, I guess, or not manage. <laughs> um, and so he was only there really to, to network because uh, we we kind of, I'd say, in the last month. Um, before September, had sort of ironed out how the company was going to be structured. Um, we even did a little sort of mini test the waters, get the gossip uh, papers going, saying that we were setting up a, a New York office. Um, Jeff was still working for it, just hadn't given his notice in or anything. But, you know, we envisaged um, the company basically being formed later on that year, and he'd certainly be, um, be heading it up uh, in the new year. And so, um, yeah, just, it's always been hard sort of knowing that, you know, it wasn't his place of work, really. You know, I think he had to kind of bullshit to his boss, um, you know, how how you could actually be allowed to go down to this um, conference. Oh, my. Um, so he's only there really for, for us. Um, <clears throat> so 
he attended this conference. We knew um, I was actually on holiday in Lanzarote um, with my family and my mum had flown out the day before we'd been there for a week. And um, so I wasn't aware that he was going to this conference. Um, there was a lot of email exchange the, the week before. Um, and I, I won't go into the complex story as to why my two co-directors didn't end up going, but, but both of them could have done. And um, they both had tickets. That's another story. Um, but I didn't know that Jeff was there. So he, he actually that morning at about two or three minutes past eight had sent out an email to a, a kind of thread I didn't see until afterwards um and uh you know basically saying very quickly as I'm running late for the risk uh waters conference um and his fiance Caroline remembers him sort of in a bit of a, a panic struggling to get his clothes on um you know to get out the door but she remembers him leaving about quarter past eight and um you know he had plenty of time to get down there he was only a few blocks away um so there you have it that's that's how he he found himself to be at the conference um that morning not his normal place of work wow well it makes you think obviously the vagaries of chance and fate and you know directivity of time and you know he wound up there and other folks from his company did not i mean it it really makes you wonder you know why we are here and what our role is and i i would think you know that jeff's role maybe have been to help right an extraordinary wrong and to present unthinkable truths in a way that cannot be suppressed what do you what do you think um i guess that's that's taking on a um a bit of a it's a fate or it's inevitable that that was going to happen um view which I, I don't know whether life actually plays out like that i think we perhaps have a, a bit of a control of our perspective of, of events as they unfold, whether they're intended to or not. But, um, yeah, I think he, he is going to pay. Uh, it has played, certainly in my um, life. Uh, um, you know, it got me to question and think about an awful lot of stuff. I was very happy in my own little bubble um, and, until um, 9-11. Um, but certainly, you know, him in his through his death is, is playing a massive part, I think, um, or trying to do um, what I can in the UK um, to not right or wrong, but you know to certainly expose um, certain aspects of uh, what we've been told um, as being you know a lie. Um, I'll tell you what when so- we when we come back because we're almost at the bottom of the hour. I, I want to go into the suit and why this could represent mm-hmm. a, a major new uh, entry point into finding out the truth, and I'm also curious. Um, how you can do something legally in the U.S. from the United Kingdom. I'm, I'm personally very intrigued with that. So um, let's just ask everyone to kind of hold it where they are. Um, you're on the other side of midnight. Uh, my guests this morning are uh, former Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney. Uh, and there's nothing former about Cynthia, but uh, we'll get into some of the things she's doing right now currently, which are very interesting. Uh, Barbara Honiger, who has been with us for many, many uh, uh, programs, uh, definitely has been asked with, with many programs. And of course, uh, Matt Campbell, who is the uh, uh, brother of one of the uh, uh, victims of, of 9-11. Um, I'm having a problem with one of my circuits. So without further ado, what I think we're gonna do is go to a break because I can't seem to make something work which uh, is not good uh, when you're relying on electronic technology. You know, back when we used to do radio in studios where we had all these engineers, uh, it's not quite that way anymore. So uh, uh, you have to kind of adjust your mindset. Um, When you hit a switch and things do not work, it can be very, very deleterious. We shall return. As you continue to work on yourself, the tribe comes forward. They'll come right to your door. So just keep doing the work and it'll come together. Yep, as you increase your frequency, then you become 
more mature in your manifestation abilities and your other higher senses and gifts come online and then you have more power to make your world different and better and how you want it. And so that's why working on yourself is so important because then you're going to create the reality that you want rather than get sucked into the dystopia that's being created by the negative or shadow side. We're becoming uh, Renaissance men and women where we have multiple skill sets and we can dance from science into art and we can use both sides of our hemispheres and we can realize how much we have to really offer and uh, grow into. And this is what's happening now. This is where we're headed into a really beautiful place. So we can rejoice in that despite the fear, despite what it looks like on the outside. This is how disease transforms. The mess in the chaos is necessary in order to see what you have before you so you can clean it up and just make decisions to change your reality. If you don't see it, how do you know it's there to even be changed or if you ignore it, right? Then how can you make the differences? You can't. So the mess is before us, accept our mess and now know that that's part of empowerment to be able to see and to be able to transform it. Hi, this is Amanda Vollmer and I was on the other side of the news and I really enjoyed my time discussing deeper topics and really getting to the heart of truth and the things that matter in this world and what we are doing and why we're here and, and what we're heading toward. I really recommend listening in and, and learning, uh, expanding your awareness and your knowledge. It's important and these are the times to do it and we're being asked to pay attention and to challenge ourselves and uh, think beyond, beyond the box. And we are back. Uh, Keith, we've got a problem with our, our main machine that I use for promos and music, so if you can kind of go in and see why it's not getting to the board, that would be very useful. Sorry for the backstage radio folks, but sometimes when you've got an emergency, you need to pull the ripcord. So um, if, if you can do that, Keith, while I'm doing this. So let me bring my guest back. Um, uh, my, my third guest of the morning is Congressman Cynthia McKinney, uh, Cynthia is someone I wanted to talk to for a very long time. Uh, no, the other machine, Keith, the other machine. Thank you. Um, and that's because you have been involved in so many interesting uh, causes, and we could take up three hours without even blinking an eye just beginning to talk about them. So let me focus in on this one. When did you, when did you first get into the 9-11 truth idea why did you think there was something weird from the get-go? And what were your first steps to try to get uh, an official, shall we say, reinvestigation of the bizarre cover stories that have been spreading for over 20 years on this? Okay, um, that's, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> um, and Matt uh, talked about li us living in a bubble and I think I was living in a bubble, too, when I first got elected to Congress. I was living in a kind of bubble because I believed in our political system. And I believed that it was possible for our elected officials to actually represent us. I believed that the Constitution was the law of the land, and I believed that U.S. policy, both domestic and foreign, could be made better if we got better people elected to office. So that was the bubble that I was living in when I <clears throat> was elected to Congress and serving in Congress in 
2001, September 11th. When were you elected? I was elected in 1992, got sworn in in 1993. So I had been there. So you had a kind of a database of the real Washington as opposed to the, you know, mythical uh, Mr. Smith Washington. That's exactly right, because I believed in that Mr. Smith Washington. And then I <laughs> uh, rudely was made aware that that was that I was living in a bubble. And so I uh, was confronted with the real world. Now, I, of course, understood <clears throat> that there was another side to the bubble because being African-American, being a child of the South, going through the civil rights movement, understanding the abhorrence of U.S. foreign policy, particularly U.S. military policy, and, un and uh, also understanding the, the diabolical effect on other peoples around the world of our policies, that part was no bubble for me. That part was was my path that I walked. But I actually thought that um, change, positive change, could be had. So let me just go through <clears throat> some things that I've jotted down here because I, it's it's I think it will shed some light on um, where I think we are now. So back then, I had this idea of elected officials being true representatives of the people. I looked at Senator Mike Gravel and the role that he played in reading the Pentagon Papers on the Senate floor. I was aware of Senator Frank Church and <clears throat> the role that he played in leading an investigation into the excesses of U.S. intelligence activities, both at home and abroad, and with the COINTELPRO um, uh, program. And so then during September 11th, of course, I was completely aware of false flag operations and um, <clears throat> understood that what we were seeing was something other than what we were being told that we had seen. And, uh, and I got punished for that. Kurt Weldon is an uh, unsung hero, I believe, in this, in that he went to the House floor after a briefing that I attended as well about... Um, uh, able danger, he went to the House floor and he said, if it costs me my job, I'm going to get to the bottom of what happened on September 11th. And that ended up being um, sort of a, a, a death knell of his political career because the last thing people wanted really my signal is bad. Okay, so the last thing that people wanted was for a an errant member of Congress to actually try and get to the bottom of it. With the exception of Dennis Kucinich and his objection to the Obama's war against the people of Libya, we haven't really had real strength, fortitude, courage coming from our elected representatives. And um, so I think what we've seen in terms of opposition to what the deep state wants is theater rather than substance. Hmm. Kind of like branding. If you brand an idea in a certain way, you get a lot of people to think, kind of get entrained in the the idea of this is the way it gets groupthink. Yes, and of course, um, since I I, I studied uh, international relations, I was aware of groupthink. You know, it's one of the 
fundamental books and concepts that you read um, when you, at your master's level because of uh, President Kennedy's ability to get beyond groupthink with the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so, um, you know, but then we have, we could even say that there was an end to, to journalism as well because we had Seymour Hersh who uh, exposed the Operation Northwoods. And we didn't, we the people, we didn't realize how truly close to war the United States and the Soviet Union had come. We also... Oh, they were talking, they were talking, Cynthia, about shooting down John Glenn and blaming it on Castro. Exactly, and shooting down university students who were home for vacation, going going home from university for vacation and blaming it on Castro. So, I mean, this was our own Pentagon that was doing it. And then if you look at what happened with September 11th, it looked a whole lot like Operation Northwoods to me. So uh, hang on, hang on. The, I want to go through this very carefully because we don't have you for a lot of time. So I've got this great opportunity. You're in Congress, you're a sitting Congresswoman. You're, you're, you've made history. You're the first black woman from Georgia to be elected. Congratulations. And you're looking at this and something says to you from the get-go, this is wrong? Oh, yes. Um, what were the clues? Tell us, walk us through your, your thought process. Well, I read, I had read uh, John Shackelford, I believe is his name. I should have, I should know his name, should have looked it up, but I just woke up. So, <laughs> so, so I want your audience to please pardon me. But um, so I was aware of uh, In Search of Enemies was the book that he wrote, which was the first he was the first CIA whistleblower that exposed U.S. policy and how it affected other peoples around the world. And he focused on Africa because that's where he was stationed. And he also uh, pointed out Henry Kissinger's idea about separating um, concern for human rights from a U.S. policy. And so therefore, yeah. Kissinger had no problem recruiting African-Americans with their lack of information on Africa and all things African, but recruiting African-Americans to go and fight on the African continent for the U.S. deep state as opposed to fighting uh, against colonialism alongside the Africans. And um, this had a profound effect on me in terms of um, what I knew the United States policymakers were actually capable of. In addition to that, as a mother of a young boy, black boy in the South, I also um, was mm, sort of uh, concerned about why it was that you had a certain type of black person who could be easily elevated, easily reelected. I had seen this during my stint in the Georgia legislature. And of course it was replayed again in uh, the United States Congress. So if you were anti-black, but you were also black, then uh, and pro deep state, then you did you got uh, positive press. You had money in the bank. You had campaign coffers that were overflowing. But if you actually were trying to work to improve the conditions of the black community, um, you had a tough road to hoe. And um, so I uh, was aware of COINTELPRO. And had taught my son about COINTELPRO, even, you know, as he was very young. But I, he was raised uh, with me reading the COINTELPRO documents to him. That's probably how he learned how to read. So anyway, <laughs> um, you know, I, I was uh, in this state of wonderment at how 
the United States could talk a good line, but could actually be a, a, a dragon of a behemoth. Uh, and so um, when September 11th happened, I immediately, my gut told me that it was wrong. My gut told me that everything that happened, say, for example, <clears throat> there was a, a magazine of pictures that was Im made immediately available. I say, how did that happen? You mean like a special edition, like Life used to put out special editions yeah. of the magazine? Yes, exactly. And uh, we had uh, talking points that were distributed to all 535 members of Congress and everybody on Capitol Hill and everybody in the White House were, were uh, reading from the talking points which said we were hit because we were free. And I was supposed to take that back to my constituents and tell them that they were free. Well, it's a joke. <laughs> okay. So I couldn't do that in good faith. And I couldn't do that because I'm not a low information person. I, I'm a researcher and I dig deeply and I love to do it. I'm not satisfied with half answers. In fact, <clears throat> I was also aware of COINTELPRO against the Black Panther Party and how it was members of the deep state that organized to make sure that authentic representation for the black community in the United States did not happen. And Fred Hampton, who was a, a chairman of the uh, Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party was murdered by elements of the deep state instead of being able to live and become mayor or even governor or even a U.S. representative. He was murdered in his bed after having been drugged by a black man who was working for the FBI. So um, what Fred Hampton said was that he was sick and tired of having answers that don't answer, explanations that don't explain, and conclusions that don't conclude. Well, I was all aware of this. And so what the talking points meant to me was just another iteration of, of what Fred Hampton had said. There were no answers, there were no explanations, and there were no conclusions. So I said, that it is incumbent upon the U.S. government to conduct an independent investigation of what happened on September 11th, and that's why I got kicked out of Congress the first time. Wow. Fascinating, fascinating. So your radar said, as you're watching those planes and you're watching number two hit, this isn't right. I mean, apart from the horrific nature of the event, the the uh, commentary, the narration, the preparation of materials told you somebody knew this was coming. Well, what it told me, I had enough background to understand that things don't just happen. Things are made to happen. That's the nature of politics. But wasn't that FDR? In politics, there's no such thing as coincidence, he kept saying. Oh, okay. Well, see, I'm not aware of FDR saying that. You, but may, that... you may freely steal it from now on. <laughs> With attribution, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the old joke, you know, a poor poets plagiarize, great poets steal. <laughs> Okay, so uh, yeah, so so anyway, there was th there was digging to be done, and I made that that statement, which was ridiculed. I learned also how the U.S. deep state moves, because it was Juliet Alperin at the Washington Post. Now I wrote uh, I wrote an op-ed. And I said, if if a train derails or an airplane uh, crashes, 
you have the National Transportation Safety Board kicked into action and you get an investigation that has subpoena power and you can get real answers so that this accident never happens again. Well, we were saying that uh, we're going to make sure September 11th never happens again, but there was no mechanism in which to do it. And then when we were having the briefings that were supposed to be closed briefings for members only, one particular member of Congress has snuck individuals into the House chamber who had no business being there. And in fact, they represented another country. And so, wait, 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 wait. Aren't, aren't aren't there visitors allowed in the gallery? Oh no, this was a special um, members-only briefing. Oh, okay. This is members-only briefing. Oh, I, I, I so see. I see. Okay. Only members uh, were supposed to be there Got because it. you know the hot shots were gathered together together to tell us more lies. They weren't going <laughs> to tell us what had happened. And uh, even uh, at that, I think their minders were there, were were ushered in. These happened to be people who were invited into the chamber by Tom Lantos. And it was the temerity of a freshman member who didn't know that he was supposed to keep his mouth shut and not tell on Tom Lantos, who was like the grand um, ohm, not the grand dame, but the grand ohm of um of the of the the US Congress and uh so they were ignominiously uh escorted out but it was there for all of us to see that Tom Lantos had snuck about five people in who had no business being there now when you say had no business are you, are you talking pejoratively or were you happy that Lantos had tried to expand the uh, uh, briefing uh, selection? No, I'm I, I'm not happy about it at all. A members-only briefing sh- m- means just that. It doesn't mean people who are not supposed, who are not members, to be there. Well, and I, it I don't mean this to be a diversion, but if if he if he was the old man, and I, I watched Lando's career for many years, why did he do that? Lantos was also the APAC representative American Israel Public Affairs okay. for uh, okay. the Congress. And there's always a point person. So whenever Lantos would introduce legislation, you knew, well, I learned the hard way that you had to look at it twice <laughs> because there was always something in it for Israel and you needed to make sure that what of what you were voting for. But you see, that was... Mo- what that meant was that Lantos was untouchable. And this freshman member didn't realize that Lantos was one of the untouchables, uh, n- not in the um, Indian caste system way, but um, in the no- uh, U.S. nobility way that uh, you couldn't, uh, if Lantos did it, you it, it just stood. And that was because you didn't want to get on the wrong side of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. Hmm. Okay. Richard, could I ask a question? Yeah, by all means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the first thing I'd like, I have two questions, a comment and a question. Um, Cynthia is being much too modest and humble. Um, <laughs> I, hope that, I hope that Cynthia will will in a moment um, tell everyone about how she is the hero of 9-11 Truth in the U.S. Congress. No one but Cynthia McKinney held an official U.S. House of Representatives to two all-day-long hearings bringing in witnesses, 9-11 victims' family members, uh, CIA whistleblowers, etc. I was there in the in this magnificent uh, house chamber with chandeliers with Cynthia up there on the dais. And she ran those for two days. 
um, official House of Representatives investigational hearings on the truth about 9-11. And I would like to have Cynthia please talk about that. And the other, the other question I have, Cynthia, maybe you're not uh, at, at liberty to tell us, but please, if you can, tell us what you can tell us about the briefing about 9-11 for that members only. That's that was the one I was going to get to. Thank you, Barbara. Yeah. Well, basically, um, <clears throat> on the Hill, once you've been there for a minute, if you come there with some background, that is also, I guess, and if you m manage to get the bubble that you're in when you arrive there pierced in some kind of way, um, and so then I guess you could call it in, in today's parlance, I guess it would be you're red-pilled. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, what happened was uh, I was red-pilled very early on, and uh, so I was able, thank goodness, to look at things more realistically. And I guess it was uh, something about that, the, that, that moment when the freshman member challenged the, the, Mr. S Mr. Speaker, there are people in this room who have no business being here. And he stood up and he pointed. <laughs> and that was a moment like, I mean, that was such a special moment because it just never happened. Uh, uh, Tom Lantos and others like him walked on, they, they, they literally walked on water um, and the water was every aspect of that United States Capitol. Well, the whole so seniority was, system. Well, no, because if you, it's, it's for the money that if you're on the wrong side of the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, you don't get money. And it takes money to get reelected. Mm-hmm. So you don't get the money and you're subject to get kicked out. The example that I that was set by me is that I was extremely popular in Georgia and uh, but I was an example for all of the other black members of Congress. Look, we don't care how popular you are. If you go against us, you're going to get treated just like her. You're going to be gone. And a few of them, like Eddie Bernice Johnson from Dallas, actually complained to APAC about the way they targeted me. They targeted um, Cleo Fields of Louisiana. They targeted um, Earl Hilliard of Alabama. We were the first. Uh, Alabama, uh, Alabama had never sent a black person to Congress since Reconstruction and uh, we were it and yet APAC was able to go into our districts and tell lies, spend a lot of money, recruit people representatives for APAC who um, were more concerned about Tel Aviv than they were about Birmingham or Montgomery yeah. Yeah. or Okay, uh, Cynthia, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I have to cut in. We're at the top of the hour. My guests this morning are Congressman, former Congressman Cynthia McKinney, uh, our old uh, friend and colleague Barbara Honiger, and Matt Campbell, whose brother died in the World Trade Catastrophe 20 years ago. We're learning from Cynthia about the real world in Washington including lobbyists and money. And we're going to get to how this all converges on the 9-11 inquiry when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>